Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. In this third series, we're going slightly off the beaten track. These 10 conversations will take us on a journey from the world of psychedelics, ecological grief and the self, to technobiophilia, leadership and how we might begin to recreate our identity as a species in the face of the unfolding climate crisis. Join me each week as we explore these topics and more. And if you like the show, please do rate or review it as it helps to reach new ears. For additional resources and to find out more, visit natalinahai.com forward slash the hive podcast or tweet to me at natalinahai. I hope you enjoy the show. In today's episode, I'm delighted to be speaking with Sue Thomas, an academic and an author who has written and edited eight books, most notably the Clark-nominated Sci-Fi Correspondence and Technobiophilia, Nature and Cyberspace, which came out in 2013. Her most recent book, Nature and Wellbeing in the Digital Age, came out more recently and includes practical tips on how to feel better without logging off. She's currently writing The Fault in Reality, a novel about the intoxication of connectedness and what happens when it takes an unexpected turn. She founded the Trace Online Writing Centre at Nottingham Trent University in 1994 and became Professor of New Media at De Montfort University in 2005. She now writes full-time and in this conversation we touched on a whole range of really fascinating subjects so it's my great pleasure to invite Sue onto the show. So I'm going to start with a big question which is where do you think we're headed as a species? Well that's really up to us I guess. Um I'm quite keen on the James Lovelock's Gaia theory that if humans ever became troublesome or too troublesome, then the planet was ju- would just shrug us off. <laughs> um, and I think that's very possible. The only question is, is how much damage is going to be done before we get kicked off our own planet. Um, but in an ideal world, I'd like to think that everything's going to be better. There's going to be more integrated interspecies communication and, and living peacefully together on the planet. But again, that's entirely up to us. So there are two very different routes and I have no idea wh- which one will happen. It's curious, a sense of um, living in harmony with other beings, because we seem to be very bad at living in harmony, even within our own species, let alone yeah. with people or beings with whom we share the, the wider the wider world. Yes, absolutely. Um, what can we say? It's, it's just looking very um, precipitous at the moment. Um, and I don't even know if it's just gone beyond any point where we can retrieve humanity from the, the state that it's got everybody into. It's funny because I think it sounds very in line with a lot of things that I'm reading and listening to at the moment about other people who are really staring down the face of the the research that's being done that's, that does look extremely difficult and bleak. Um, not that there aren't things that we, you know, that we can't do. Of course there are, but I think um, in order to be able to make progress of any kind, by which I mean adapt to 
um, the change that's to come and hopefully mitigate the worst of it, we have to be able to accept that we're in a really difficult position, that we've created a very difficult position to be in, I think. Yes, yes. Mm. And so you have a really interesting um, realm of knowledge and research and you write, among other things, about technobiophilia. Uh, can you explain a little bit about what this is and how it shows up in our lives? Well, technobiophilia is a word that I made up myself. <laughs> I love and it. It's not a very good word, but I couldn't think of any any other word. Um, but it, it's it comes from um, the research I did for the book that ended up being called Technobiophilia, Nature and Cyberspace. And um, it it comes from my initial research into the question of why is it that when we first went into cyberspace and and even now as we still go in we developed a whole set of nature metaphors Mm. to describe cyberspace like um you know streams and the web and clouds etc and bugs and viruses (laughs) bugs viruses web obviously And so I started out in the early 2000s to try and find out why. Um, And it took me eight years to figure out why we did this. And the solution came um, when I discovered E.O. Wilson's concept of biophilia. And then suddenly everything fell into place. Um, So just to to kind of define what E.O. Wilson called um, biophilia was that he called it the innate attraction to life and lifelike processes. Mm. And that's the term that describes, you know, how we react to nature because everybody knows that nature's good for you. When somebody says, oh, I need to get back to nature for a while, we totally understand what they're talking about. Mm. Um, Everybody has this sense of of longing for nature at different times in, in their lives often. But it was Wilson who actually used that term biophilia to describe this urge, if you like. Um, And he went on to suggest that he believes that it's kind of genetically coded into us because from the very earliest beginnings, we had to learn to live and operate within, obviously, the natural world, um, be able to survive in it, to recognize what was good for us, what was bad for us. And so we were intimately connected with the everyday processes of nature. Mm. Um, He later on made another very interesting suggestion, which was that perhaps biophilia can be triggered, Mm. that it can go dormant for a while and then be triggered back into life. So they're, they're the kind of basic ideas behind his concept of biophilia. I'm curious, what are some of these triggers? Um, he, do you know, he didn't really say. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I've wondered, mm. I've wondered whether it could be triggered by personal need. Mm. Um, at different times in our lives, we feel that need <laughs> mm. to to connect more closely with nature, and at other times, we just kind of. Um, ignore it Um, but he didn't spell that out Um, so yeah I I can't answer that question Um, but but what I did start to think was that maybe the trigger in this case was the actual adventure of going into cyberspace because 
when we entered cyberspace in in the kind of well it was the the um the internet was born in 1969 um and really, in the years following that, people ventured into this new territory which worked by completely different rules to the landscapes and the physicality of the planet that we're used to. So I came to the conclusion that the reason that people were developing these um, nature-focused metaphors to describe their experience online was because they were trying to connect it with something that they vaguely recognised, if that makes sense. Maybe map out the territory. Yeah. If you're in a strange place, you might want to say, oh, well, that looks like another place I know, mm. so now I feel more comfortable in mm. it. Yeah, that's fascinating. So that's where it all fell together. And that's why I thought, okay, um, t- there's biophilia, but then there's also technobiophilia, which is exactly the same as his definition the innate attraction to life and lifelike processes, but as they appear in technology. Mm. So that's the area that I've been exploring for quite some years now. When I think about our sense of relationship with our environment, so everything within which we were situated, we seem to draw these quite arbitrary distinctions between nature and us, even though we are of nature. It's not like we just got you know put down here by a, an alien spaceship um and then by extension we also create an arbitrary distinction between nature and technology but is this situation really as clear-cut as we like to think it is well i don't believe it is because I, and, and technology is just another aspect of nature really mm. it's um another phenomenon or manifestation mm. um and one thing i found very interesting when i was researching the book was to ask a lot of interesting people the same question, which was, if the internet were a landscape, what kind of landscape do you think it would be? Oh, that's such an interesting question. Well, I don't know what you... you do you want to tell me what you would say? <laughs> um, I think of a very complex, multi-layered city, like somewhere like, I don't know, maybe Shanghai, but a futuristic version. What do you think? What's, what's your vision that springs to mind? Ah, very interesting. Mm. Well, what, what do I think? I, I guess I, th- I think of it as being like the ocean, um, but then we all bring our own metaphors to whatever feels right for us. But certainly ocean was very much, was, was a very common metaphor that people told me about. And so, for example, I interviewed Tim O'Reilly of um, a very well-known Web 2.0, um, well, what was he? He coined the term, I think, Web 2.0 of O'Reilly Media. And um, Tim O'Reilly said immediately, oh, it's just like the ocean because you can be in it, but you can only see small parts of it at any one time. Um, Other people said it was like a desert. Other people said that it was like um, a forest for similar reasons to Tim O'Reilly. But most people had a fairly quick response. And most people um, talked about rural landscapes rather than your city. (laughs) Really? That's so fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Well, I guess that for me, I thought it propped up my theory <laughs> that um, that people, <laughs> yeah, that that people would think it. I mean, obviously, a lot of people might say the web as well because we're used to that. That's kind of been imposed on us, if you like. Hmm. I wonder, especially in in a time in which we are generating so much content specifically for the consumption of people online, where it's kind of 
a lot of our lives are now revolving around technology as opposed to technology just being a tool that supports our living. Um, I wonder how people's metaphors might change over time um, as to what the web is for them. Do you think it's something that, that is something which is evolving alongside our use of it, that the relationship changes at a fundamental level? Well, that's a good thought because I haven't really asked people that question since the, um, uh, about 2009, I guess, when I was asking a lot of people who had been online for a long time. So today's um, users, if you like, particularly the younger users, would have a different concept. I think a, a massive difference as well is that at the time when I was looking at it, mobile phones were still quite new um, and people were generally, mm. you know, tethered to, to their laptops or their um, main, you know, big computers, desktops. So they are physically experiencing it differently to phones. Yeah. And, and people often say to me as well, you know, well, the web, that's not it anymore. Instagram is it or WhatsApp is it. That is the place we go. Note the term. <laughs> we go to the place yeah. of WhatsApp you know, um, and I think they still very much have the sense of, you know, you and I right now are talking on Skype. We're in the same room together somewhere. Mm. Um, mm. But it's not so concentrated on, on the Internet per se as it used to be. And also I would add to that that I always use the term cyberspace and people used to say to me, that's a really old fashioned term. You shouldn't use it. But actually, cyberspace, that is the place where we both are right now. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny, isn't it, that people like this sense of, I guess it's kind of going to a specific node in a network and finding their their platform there and then sticking to it. And maybe it's about the sense of security and familiarity that it, maybe it's become like an alternative to the town square. Yeah. Yeah. And and Facebook has really affected that as well because Facebook has mm. put so many limitations on that place that we didn't have before. Like things like not being able to control the colour of your page. In the early days, you could make your community page any colour you like, but now Facebook won't let you. So, you, you know, we're very reduced. We're in a kind of uniform environment in Facebook. Mm. Um, and people who weren't around in the early days might not realise that. It's so fascinating, the sense of standardisation, which seems to happen when things get to a certain critical mass. Um, I remember hearing Jaron Lanier talk a, a bit about this, this idea that in the early days, of course, cyberspace was like that. It was this, sort of, this wild west of possibility and creativity and yeah. um, people would code their websites from scratch. And I remember I remember having a dial-up connection. Uh, I remember when I was 15 or 16, starting to use the internet and um, the different kinds of platforms you would have. They were, they were not at all homogenous. They were very distinctive. Yeah. And there was yeah. a sense of direct relating that, that I feel we've lost now because now we go on someone else's platform we follow their guidelines what do you think that does in terms of our sense of agency and our perception of ourselves as I guess creative um, agents within within cyberspace well from my point of view I think that's much reduced mm -hmm. I mean in in the 1990s I was running um, an online community for writers that was called Trace and it was an international community and everything happened on the web. That was um, way before uh, we could use video. It was all, you couldn't do video chat. Um, 
it was very simple, but there are lots of different platforms. So one of my obsessions was always looking for the perfect platform <laughs> for our community. Um, and we did use the chat, we used the chat room quite a lot. Um, but beyond that, you couldn't really have any live interaction. Um, but there was very much a sense of that kind of individuality mm. um, that people would feel they were coming to this unusual place that many other people did not go to. So that made them a bit special. And um, they could, you know, literally do anything they wanted to do online. Um, whereas these days, I'm not sure in the popular platforms that people have that sense of freedom. It's much mm. more conformist. But there must be places, other places for younger people that I don't go to, where there is still that sense of anarchy. Mm. And I wonder also, I'm just sort of checking my thoughts as I'm thinking it, but I do get the sense that... I'm, I'm really intrigued to see what your, your sense of this is. I get the sense that people go online a lot more now to consume because consumption is easier than creation, even though a lot of people do also create. It feels to me like the balance has shifted. I mean, would you agree with that? Do you think that that's maybe a bit, that's not representative? What are your thoughts on, on mm. that, on creativity versus consumption? Well, I suppose I, I have a slightly kind of prejudiced view because the website <laughs> that I was running in, in the 90s there were people going there to create because they were all they were writers who were learning mm. how to do HTML <laughs> and they were learning how to do little flash movies and how to make things oh, move yeah. around the screen and all this kind of thing. But even then, although our community was over 5,000 people, that group was very tiny. Mm. And, and as a writer, I think it's a bit the same in that more, many more people read books than write books. Mm -hmm. And the same with newspapers, you know, more people read newspapers than actually even write a letter to a newspaper. Yeah. So you get this notion of lurking, the, the old <laughs> thing that, you know, you would lurk on a page because yeah. you would just sit quietly and watch. Yeah. And there are a lot of people like that, even on Facebook now. So mm -hmm. maybe that's just natural human behaviour. I mean, we all yeah. know people who know everything that we're doing from our Facebook feed, but they never post and they never even like, they just watch. It does seem that, that technology, whatever we're doing now, is, is something which you can't really escape from. And I kind of, I want to jump from that point and, and ask you a bit about one of the many books that you've written, which is called Correspondence, which I know is shortlisted for the Clark Award and other science fiction prizes. Um and this is a story about a woman who transforms herself into a machine. And this story runs alongside a parallel uh, narrative of a woman who merges with nature. Can you tell us a bit about this really fascinating storyline and the potential tension or similarities between these two transformations? Well, that was the first novel that I ever wrote. I had no clue what I was doing. <laughs> and, and it actually began... <laughs> And it, it, it began as two separate stories. So I was writing two books. One of them was about the woman who wants to become a cyborg. And the other one was about a woman who was desperate to live in the countryside. And um, the second one was very much about me because at the time I was a single parent, mature student with two kids. And I, and I lived in a suburb of Nottingham and I was desperate to move out and live in a cottage in the countryside. <laughs> and, and, I, and of course, the kids were dead against it. <laughs> um, and so I thought the only way I'm going to do this is to write, write it out for myself because I don't understand why I want to do this. 
So I'll create a woman mm. and I'll let her do it and I'll find out through her, um, you know, what, what what's going on, what's going on with me. So I was mm. writing her and at the same time, as a mature student, I was learning basic programming. This was in 1985 was when I started um, my, my humanities degree. So I was learning how to code and that to me was a complete revelation. The wonderful idea that you could live in a world where everything was right or wrong and that you could write a computer program and then you would type run and if you'd done it correctly it would go exactly as you'd planned. And I just <laughs> and I just used to think if only life was like that, you know <laughs> I would be so yeah. much happier. So I was writing about this woman. I wrote a few short stories as well about women living in that kind of universe, but ended up writing a, um, a novel about it. And then one day I was really stuck. I didn't know where to go with these two characters. So I decided to give them a conversation together, let them just mm. talk. And as they talked, I realized that I was talking about one book. And I was talking about two different sides of me um, going in two very different directions. So that's when wow. I kind of merged them together and started writing correspondence proper because it was about correspondences between people, between worlds and so on. So at the end of all of that, by the time it was done, I think what I understood was that the countryside story was about somebody who desperately wanted to merge with nature. And the computer story was about somebody who desperately wanted to merge with a machine. So it was about the sublime in both cases, really. But it was a long journey of discovery. Oh, that's so interesting. And it's so fascinating to me that you use the word sublime because I'm currently studying um, art in Barcelona and in the first year we were doing art history and we're talking about this this sense of the sublime and it's almost like a a terror and an awe and appreciation of beauty of the extraordinariness of nature that the fact that it's so much bigger than we are that it's completely uncontrollable um uh, yeah so there's this this sense of of awe and and terror that we get and so I wonder with the relationship that we have with technology if as you maybe suggest there is that similar sense of terror and awe and potential and beauty I I think absolutely and and amusingly I won't reveal the the ending of correspondence but <laughs> a friend of mine who was asked to um put do a blurb for the back of the book um said it was chilling and I said, it's not chilling, it's wonderful. <laughs> and I think that sums it up. <laughs> what was it that was chilling to her that you found wonderful, that there was such a different... Well, the, 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 the merging between human and machine. For me, it was an ecstatic moment. Oh, I see. It's a bit like Seven of Nine in Star Trek. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> yeah, to me, it was, an, an, it was an ecstatic moment. But to my friend, it was chilling. Mm. I do wonder, do you, do you feel that this, this kind of sense of split, because I definitely have the sense of split between really wanting to run for the hills and be with nature and this romanticised idea of what that might look like. Um, and then the other side of me that relies, as I'm doing right now, on technology for uh, communication, for research, for entertainment. Do you, think, do you think there is a way, well... 
yeah, what do you think are some of the ways that we can weave these things together so we have a more rich life? Because I know that you've written another book, which I'm reading, which is fascinating, Nature and Wellbeing in the Digital Age, where you talk about how we can live well with nature in a wired world. Um, how do we do that? What are some of the key yeah. principles? Well, I think the first principle is give up on the guilt. People who are saying, oh, I spend too long on my phone or my laptop or iPad or whatever. Um, that gives rise to this kind of anxiety and guilt about doing it. And then you think you have to go and have a digital detox. And so you, you know, lock your phone away for a week or whatever. And you think that's going to make you feel better. <laughs> and then you just feel really anxious because, you know, you're missing your entire community of friends and, and kind of colleagues out there. Um, so I think the first step is get, you know, forget about that. Um, don't feel guilty. Um, just enjoy enjoying your, your phone or whatever it is. And at the same time, also take responsibility for the fact that, you know, your phone does not dominate you. You are in charge. And, and if you want to turn it off, you can turn it off. But if you choose not to, then you can kind of integrate it into your daily life. So that's that's the first step, I think, that people have to take um, is is not to feel overpowered by technology because you, you do have control of it. Um, and then beyond that, what I've been looking at is ways to, to actually just... Ex there's several several aspects to it. I mean, one is the idea that people do use technology a lot for doing, quote, nature type things, whether it's taking photographs or whether it's mm. using maps and knowing where you are. A, a strong part of it actually is sharing because people really appreciate seeing other people's photographs. You know, you just see the photos of sunsets on Facebook and how many likes they get. Mm. Um so th there's a strong sense of using technology as a tool in that sense. Um, but there's there's kind of deeper aspects to it. Shall I explain a little bit about where that comes from and the psychology behind it? Yes, please. I'd love to hear more. Well, when I first started looking into biophilia, I found a whole range of work on environmental psychology, which was all completely new to me. Um, it's not a kind of area that I know anything about. And I found that really since the 80s, um, particularly, a number of environmental psychologists had been trying to measure the, the impact of nature on people. Because going back to what I was saying earlier about, we all know that nature is good for us and we, we don't bother to measure it. Um, but these environmental psychologists were doing that. So there are a number of people who did very specific experiments. So I'll just tell you about one or two of them. Um, so, for example, in, mm. in 1984, um, a psychologist called Roger Ulrich did a really famous experiment whereby he took two sets of gallbladder patients who just had their gallbladder removed and he put half of them in one hospital ward and the other half in a different hospital ward. And the difference between them was that in one ward, they had a window with a view of some trees outside. And in the other ward, the view from the window was just a brick wall. 
And that was the experiment. And then they measured things like recovery time and, and um, all, all aspects of, of their um, convalescence. So what they found was that the patients in the ward who could see a tree, and it was quite an ordinary tree, but they could see a tree from the window, they, they required less pain relief, they recovered, their wounds healed more quickly, wow. they often left hospital more quickly. And it, it absolutely seemed to show that you know, if you have a view of an ordinary tree from your window, you will recover more quickly than if you have a brick wall. So that kicked off loads of other experiments in offices, in schools, in prisons, doing basically the same kind of thing over and over again and getting the same results over again. Um, one of my favourite one was the dentist waiting room experiment, which involved an aquarium. Um, and the researchers would take an aquarium with, you know, a real aquarium into a dentist's office. <laughs> and on some days they would leave this aquarium in the dentist's office and other days they would take it away. So what they found was that patients who um, saw the aquarium in the waiting room would generally, again, require less pain relief. And I always think this is really chilling. They would be more compliant in the dentist oh, chair. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. Than people who, who didn't have um, uh, the, the view of the aquarium. So the, there's a massive of work on this. Um, and as I looked into all of this, I discovered an interesting fact, which was that um, it, they, most of these experiments were done way before the World Wide Web. But they were done using window views, screens, videos, TV programs, even paintings, even calendars with paintings on them. That's where they were getting their results from. And so I asked a friend of mine who was an environmental psychologist, why didn't they just go out and test people in nature? And she said, oh, because that's too uncertain. You know, you don't get a proper test circumstances, uh, the, the proper environment. Mm. So um, th that's why they do it indoors with screens. And there's me. I was trying to figure out why did I have a screensaver of a waterfall? And of course, it's exactly the same thing. <laughs> so that, that was my, yeah, that was my big understanding that I thought, actually... Then I found other researchers who have done the same experiments on computers and in virtual reality and augmented reality, and the results are the same. So <laughs> I'm curious how that's possible when, when, because clearly sort of we have a very rich imaginal um, capacity. So if we're looking at a screen which has two dimensions, which is brightly lit with a beautiful scene in nature, um, qualitatively I would imagine there must be some difference between that and between being in an environment in which all of our senses are engaged where we can smell the yeah. soil where we can touch the bark of the tree where we can hear sounds in three dimensions around us um what are your thoughts about about that about the the quality of the immersion of the experience well I, I thought the same thing which is why I I asked around about um what why on earth mm. didn't these people use um you know, real environments, if you like. Um, I, I think it, it is to do with the imagination and, and what you bring to it. Um, there, 
there, there is this growing evidence that it works, but I don't think anybody's really um, qualitatively examining it as you're describing, because I think most of the evidence is anyway based on screens and, and so on. Some of it's not, but there was um, one piece of work which was done by, um, I think his name was uh, David Berman, where he did quite a detailed experiment of sending people out into a park um, and they had to do various um, cognitive experiments, uh, tests rather, before they went into the park and when they came out. And he was looking at their kind of cognitive mm. um, results, if you like, before and after immersion in nature. But then um, a PhD student in Canada called Delcho Valchanov, he repeated the experiment that Berman had done, but he did it in virtual reality. And he said that he got the same results. That's what his PhD was on, was the same level of, um, of results that Berman had found in a park. So I can't explain that. I mean, a very famous... Mm. Well, a couple, of, couple more short things. One is um, I wrote an article about this for Slate years ago. And I don't know if you remember the yeah. Facebook game Farmville. Um, do you remember Farmville? Yeah, way back when I remember that. Tend <laughs> your tomatoes and all that stuff. Well, um, the the people at Farmville read my article in Slate, saying more or less what I'm saying to you now, and they got in touch and they said this is amazing because they said we do a lot of um, user testing, focus groups, and we were really surprised to find that people were telling us that they played Farmville to relax, to enjoy farming their own produce and bringing it in and, or, and tending their own animals, all of this on Farmville, that it soothed them and lifted depression and all that. And they, they used to say, why, why is this happening? Because it wasn't in their plan for the game. But when they read my work on technobiophilia, they said, now we understand so very interesting and, and very mm. briefly one more example is if you look up a place called Snow World that was um that was set mm. up 20 years ago for uh, soldiers who'd been um burned mil the military people who'd been burned in um mm. action and in had terrible burns um and every day they had to have their dressings changed um and which was always excruciatingly painful. And somebody d um, devised a Snow World VR game. So they would put on their VR kit, they would go and play in this icy cold landscape, and they did not even feel their burn dressings being changed. <laughs> so, of course, yeah, of course it's in the mind, but the mind is very powerful. <laughs> mm. I'm curious with this because one of the things, and I'm a lover of technology and what it what it can give to enrich our lives and our experiences, but one one thing that I come up against, the sense of our desire to escape and the ease with which we devour content or we spend time distracted away from things that might be uncomfortable for us or, or painful. Yeah. Or for instance, in the example that you gave with Farmville, which is so interesting, the way that... Um, the creators had unintentionally designed a platform that could help alleviate dysphoric states to help people feel better by emulating something that we would have evolved to do anyway, which is to go and forage or to tend animals or whatever that might be. Yeah, I'm wondering with, with technology, if there comes a point at which 
its ease also contributes to um, somehow a, a degraded experience in the sense that instead of planting real tomatoes uh, and having some food and learning about the natural world and actually getting our fingers in the soil and all the benefits that that's been shown to have, we do the easy thing. So we go on Facebook and we do it there instead. Like, what do you think is a way for us to find balance so that we get the benefits of technology without robbing ourselves of the richness of living in our mm. natural living world? I think that's a really important question and one that people need to be looking at right now because everything that I've described, um, can you imagine how those techniques could be used, for example, in a prison to keep everybody calm? Um, I mean... Uh, mm -hmm. Some cruise ships, you know, cruise ships that have um, cabins right in the middle of the ship that have no windows and therefore they're a lot cheaper. Mm. A lot of cruise lines are now putting virtual reality windows in those rooms. So you can pretend oh. that there's a balcony there with the wind blowing the curtains and the sound of the sea. Imagine putting that in a prison cell. I mean, you could virtually keep people sedated with that. So we we so mm. the first thing is we have to understand the power of what this is doing. And I think, mm. you, you know, we, we have become passive recipients of sentimentalized nature. And um, I'm particularly interested in that because mm. I'm very interested in nature webcams and the difference between watching a live streaming of an eagle's nest with, say, watching David Attenborough storify the wild into something it's not um yes. so uh, yeah well, i think we have been seduced by years actually i would say years of tv nature programming into a place where mm. nature is a picture nature is a narrative but it's not smelly or scary um so mm. Yeah, I, I think that the kind of current vogue for some people to do extreme sports in extreme uh, landscapes is, is a response to that, really. Um, it's a complicated situation. It's, it's more to do, perhaps, with, with mm. being mindful of what exactly is going on. It seems to me that there's this, this strong desire, or at least, of course, I'm, I'm reading things around the subject, so now I'm seeing it more, but there's, there does seem to be a strong desire in many people for a rewilding, yes. which is language that we're hearing used more and more. So this sense of how do we get back in touch with that visceral sense of aliveness that we... Um, that we maybe encounter less now that we've built controlled environments in which we're comfortable. And I love having, a, you know, a beautiful, comfy bed and waking up in the mornings and having a hot shower. I enjoy all of these things. And yet at the same time, kind of in keeping the outside on the outside, uh, we also somehow cut ourselves off. I don't know how we begin to resolve this. Um, well, especially when we're living in cities, when it's harder to have direct access to the great outdoors, um, mm. if not through screens, like you say, and then also just giving ourselves the chance to get out of the city yeah. or maybe grow our plants and have some wild areas. <laughs> yeah, but you don't have to get out of the city for that. I, I mean, um, looking at the kind of younger generation, the, the idea of a forest school um, is more and more popular mm. and I, I've got four young grandsons and um, mm -hmm. they all have things like forest school days 
So maybe one day a week. Oh, that sounds amazing. They will go and spend in a local, specially created little forest school. <laughs> um, forest schools are quite common. And, um, you know, for example, it's better to go there perhaps than a zoo where you see animals in cages. So forest schools it, it is about, you know, learning how to make a fire and um, chopsticks and all that kind of thing. So I think there's more and more of an awareness that... We have to look at these things, um, you know, communal parks where people actually help with the gardening rather than just sit on a bench. There's quite a movement mm. for this. So I don't think we should despair just yet. It is very exciting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and also because one of the things I wanted to explore with you was this question of the ways in which you kind of frame technology and its ability to um, save us. So often when we're talking about things like the climate crisis, I hear kind of arguments from either ends of a polarised position. So for instance, um, one argument that I hear quite a bit is, oh, you know, technology is going to save us. Humanity is on an upward trend. We're going to be fine. We just have to deploy X or Y on a large enough scale and, you know, it, it will be okay. And then another argument that I come across quite a bit is that our obsession with technology and I mean technology of any kind, so going all the way back to the industrial age. Um, so the ability of technology throughout the ages to offer us convenience, um, entertainment, free time, etc. The argument is that this is one of the main contributing factors to where we are now with the climate crisis. So where, what are your thoughts on this? Where do you sit with this kind of melee of, of opinions and technology's role and our role within it? And with it? Well, I think we need to take a longer historical view. I mean, the Industrial Revolution wasn't really mm. very long ago. And, it, and actually, printing wasn't mm. really very long ago. So if we only just go back to, say, 12 or 13 um, yeah, the centuries, um, most people couldn't read or write. So they were living in a very different world. And then, of course, when they did start to learn and write, that fomented revolution and the people were learning about things they weren't supposed to know about. So books were reviled and then the radio <laughs> was reviled and then TV was reviled and, you know, we can go on and on. It seems like every opportunity for people to broaden their experience and broaden their ability to communicate is somehow bad. Um, and we'll see this more and more with virtual mm. reality, where we are bringing our own minds into play in a whole different way. So I'm, I'm quite cynical about the good old days because I don't think there ever were any good old days. And yeah. I mean, tools, you know, tools <laughs> poking for ants with a stick, that's a tool. So the idea that we should go back to mm. some halcyon time when people were not using any technologies, mm. I'm afraid I've got very little time for that nonsense and and some of it does come from the sentimentalization sentimentalizing of the outdoors by tv nature programs um whereas if if you compare mm. them with something like uh, watching a live streaming a live stream of, of animals or birds then you see things really happening that people don't want to see and they're not used to seeing on tv so this thing about the wild um you have to take the scary side of the wild with the pleasant side of the wild but but that's that's a diversion mm. um but in terms of so so technology i think there is just no argument to say that at some point we have to stop because that's not going to happen um 
So we have to find ways to be conscious and to um, control it or evolve with it um, as we go forward because we're not going to be able to stop this advance and nor should we. No, but I think it's wonderful. It's very interesting to to, to sort of trace your, your ideas on this. And I wonder, because, yeah, I think there's a reason why... Um, there's a reason why we enjoy technology so much and why it's been so broadly adopted and why in certain countries people will cobble together, well, in all sorts of countries, cobble together technology out of bits that they find because it, it has such a huge benefit to our lives. I think um, I think two questions I'm interested in asking around this is, one, how can we make ourselves more conscious about what we choose to create with our technology, which I think is absolutely vital. Mm. Um, so if we're talking about the stick or a club, you can use the most rudimentary technology to either kill someone or probably build a shelter yeah. if you're going to kind of go that direction. So the first one is about conscious um, use. And the second one is about whether or not technology can help us with the challenges we face today on a large enough scale to have a meaningful impact. Because I know that there's also another interesting perspective on the um, the living technology that exists that's evolved. So, for instance, carbon sinks using mangroves and trees, yes. whatever. So the, the sense of maybe we need to broaden our definition of what technology is, that it's not just human-made, but also it's the entire living world has evolved into this complex, organised, intelligent system. Yes. Well, uh, it, it is that. It always has <laughs> been that complex, organised, intelligent system. But mm. we keep trying to make it all about us. Yeah. <laughs> and so we've completely, yeah, we've just lo- lost any sense of our place in the world. Mm. And, and going back to E.O. Wilson, the day that he discovered biophilia, he writes about it very movingly when he was in a forest in Suriname. And what made him come up with this concept was that he said he suddenly realised how inconsequential he was in that forest Mm. and that all of it would just go on without him and that he didn't understand, although he was an eminent biologist, he did not understand most of what was happening around him. Mm. You know, he discovered his place and that's where he felt so deeply connected but also deeply inconsequential. So... You know, we've we've got to look at that. Mm. <laughs> um, it sounds to me almost like an opportunity for the dissolution of the ego. Yes, yes. So uh, consciously using technology, what came to mind when, when you asked me that was maybe it's less about using it and more about designing it. Mm. We have to look back at the people who actually design the technologies that we use, like Facebook and all those other things. Who are those people? What are their values? What are they trying to achieve? Um, There was a time when I used to go to a lot of technology conferences in Silicon Valley. And it was a running joke that all of the geeks and programmers there were were kind of young guys in their early 20s or younger who wanted to design a fancy thing so their fridge would tell them when they'd run out of milk. (laughs) That's what they were interested in. You know, that's what they're interested in. And so people who come along and say, actually, I don't want that. I want technology that does this or that for me that's different. Well, they're not leading the the drive. These young kids, mostly men, are leading the drive and they're making what they want to make. Mm -hmm. And it's still the same now as it was when I used to go to those conferences 10 or 15 years ago. Um, 
a few years ago, um, a conference that was happening in Rio de Janeiro um, asked me to set a design challenge for the people who were coming to this, this um, makers conference. And so I asked them to design something that was techno-biophilic. Mm. And um, the winner was a project which was never made, understandably. But what it did was it linked, it linked the user to the user's own pot plant at home. <laughs> and so, so the, the pot plant's life was dependent on things that the user did in the real world. So if the user didn't get enough exercise or feed themselves properly or whatever, this link would mean that the plant itself would, would deteriorate. It was a crazy wow. idea, but they, they had a nice picture of it. God, that's such a profound idea. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah. That's, that's what you get at the, these kinds of brainstorm. So, yeah, why can't more people think like that? Mm-hmm. And ra- rather than the, the kind of very narrow Silicon Valley culture, which produces practically everything that we use online or mm-hmm. in our, um, you know, phones or whatever. So maybe it's not so much about us changing what we use. It's more about us saying, actually, we don't want that. We want this. Mm-hmm. On that on that note about designing things, there's another question I want to ask about um, one of the th- one of the themes or one of the subjects you touch on in your book, Nature and Wellbeing in the Digital Age, and you wrote about touch pathways and you gave this beautiful example of how, for instance, when we wear a leather wristwatch, over time the strap will mould itself to our distinctive shape through our use of it. Um, and in technology, people will often talk about haptic interfaces. So yeah. when you know your, your phone vibrates in response to your touch, whatever it might be. And where do you see the biggest potential for bridging the gap between the virtual and the sensual? Well, that, that's a really interesting area for development. And, and I, I think people are starting to work in that area. Um, I mean, one of the things that I suggest to people is that this this question of touching natural objects mm. is very powerful. So I, for example, have got a bamboo mouse. I like to use a mouse. I don't like the finger pad. So um, I, I bought a bamboo mouse. You can get bamboo keyboards. You can get bamboo or different wood um, phone cases so that you are physically touching wood when you pick up your phone, <laughs> which sounds like a tiny thing, but actually it I think it could be quite powerful. Um, in s- similar ways, things that you have on your desk, you could have, for example, um, natural objects like particular stones that you like or pieces of wood that you enjoy touching or whatever mm. and make a conscious effort rather than having another cup of coffee you can make a conscious effort to pick up your stone and run it round in your fingers while you're thinking and these are all just tiny tiny things but they are connecting us with the natural world and and taking us away if you like from plastic but one more thing I want to mention with that is that in the world of of design and environmental psychology and architecture there's a great interest in what they call biophilic design Hmm. which is designing buildings and interiors that reflect that biophilic um, sense 
So if you look, if you Google biophilic design, you'll see lots of fascinating photos of beautiful buildings with, with lots of wood, stone, running water is a really big thing in a biophilic building. Mm. Um, I went to Singapore a couple of years ago, and as you probably know, there are many green walls in Singapore, buildings dripping with greenery and so on. So we can have biophilic design. So what about techno-biophilic design? What about applying the same principles of biophilic design to our appliances? I mean, they're starting to make phones now with more rounded tactile edges, aren't they, than they used to. Mm. So it's creeping in, but you could have a lot more techno-biophilic design in, in the technology that we use if people really worked hard at making it um i suppose a reasonable price it does already exist i think the the potential there is just extraordinary to be able to integrate technology with um biology not just our own but that one i find a little bit scary yes um but more sort of you know <laughs> smart homes that have um i don't know interfaces that that allow you to well, get in touch with your wall garden instead of just one pot plant. Maybe there's hundreds of them or whatever it might yeah, be. Yeah, yeah. Um, or to reroute water that you've got running through your homes. I mean, this could be extraordinary. It could be. And and actually one term I, I should mention is, is the notion of biomimicry, mm. which there is a lot of discussion about at the moment, about using, um, you know, uh, functions found in nature Mm. and using them for um, technological development and so on that goes alongside the biophilic design and that is is very hot in in discussion circles at the moment Um, so it's I think definitely on the radar yeah and I think it's an interesting thing because we, we are needing to reconnect ourselves back into these living systems and I think if we're designing technological systems that um, have the potential for sentience which I know is a hotly discussed topic then probably it would help if we actually felt ourselves part of a wider intelligent system before making design decisions that could potentially alter the course of humanity yes <laughs> that's a good idea and uh, and and the whole idea of sentience is is absolutely vital that we understand what is happening here um, and be mindful of it and and take it more slowly if possible mm. yeah I agree I love I love the uh, the possibility for progress but again I think if you're kind of running so fast down the hill that you know that it's a matter of time before you trip over and smash your face probably better to slow down <laughs> yeah 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 so you're currently writing a new book the fault in reality um and I'm curious to ask you what the main idea is and how it explores the realms of nature and technology. Well, what I'm trying to do really is um, take all of the material that I've been collecting and thinking about the last 20 odd years and turn it into fiction. Wow. Um, and I'm realising as I go along that there are a lot of similarities with that first book, Correspondence, which was 1992. Um, and it's a bit shocking to realise that you're still thinking about the same things all these years ahead. But it, I'm trying to really, I suppose, what the first subtitle, draft title I had for this book was What the Hell is Going On? <laughs> and I'm trying to make sense of, <laughs> of, of 
you know what what is happening in the world so so the book itself is actually set it, it in the brexit year of 2016 mm. so it starts in the week of brexit and it ends with with the week of trump's election mm. and so the the time span is just in between there and what i'm trying to do is to look at um not particularly the politics that runs underneath it, but really what's going on in terms of our relationship with nature, our relationship online, our the way that our minds are working. And I'm trying to think very broadly about the way people are connected in lots and lots of different um, manifestations um, to try and get some sense of what the world is becoming. Mm. Because we can look back now and we understand Cambridge Analytica was digging around in everybody's head, mm. um, you know, the, the Russian hacker stories and so on, that our heads were being seriously played with that year and we didn't really know it. Yeah. But now we do. Um, so it's written very much really from the point of view of somebody reading it now and looking back and thinking, oh yeah, I know what that was. Mm. But at the time... You, you didn't. Mm. Um, so it really is me trying to make sense of, of all of these things, how they're connected and how connectivity, which seems such a bonus, is also showing itself to have a very dark side. I do wonder about this. This is something which um, my mind bends towards with all of these conversations, which is the um, the seeming when you're going to stretch humanity's potential out to both directions to the to the dark and the light um how is it that we charter a path forward with progress in mind when so much progress has been made um but when that also comes hand in hand with a huge amount of destruction like how yeah how do you conceive Mm. of humanity moving forward Maybe the first thing is not to think of it as moving in any linear direction. Mm. Um, and, and I'm speaking as somebody who, so I'm, I'm 68. <laughs> so I was one of the people, I was one of the hippies, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, where through my lifetime, so many amazing social reforms have happened. Um, you know, women's liberation, um, the question of disability, the question of of, um, gay rights and all of these things, um, racial discrimination, Mm. all of these issues have been dealt with in my lifetime and we kind of tick them off. Great, that's done, that's done, that's done. (laughs) Now what we're seeing is half of them being unravelled. Yes. So... I don't think we can look at linear time. It's not a question of moving forward anywhere. It's it's a question of being in the now, right now, and what you've done today. Um, I think I think that's all we can do is is make every day work, which sounds like a platitude, but it, I think it's true because, from my experience, you know, you move forward, but then you just as easily move back. Mm. So I think maybe this is a good place to ask the last question. Um, if there was one insight or advice that you would give to to everyone listening about how your exploration of your work could help us lead more rich lives or face difficulty, um, what would that insight or advice be? Well, when you... You mentioned that you were going to ask me about this. I I was going to make a recommendation about getting closer to nature. Um, But this question is a much bigger one than that. (laughs) 
Um, <laughs> um, I do think that being aware of connectedness is, is really important and being aware that we are, uh, everybody says this, but, you know, that we are all on the same planet and that there are many, many forms of communication and knowledge that we simply know nothing about. Mm. So we assume that humans are elevated because we have language and we do all of these technical things, um, but that doesn't elevate us. That just makes us different from another species. I was reading about... Um, uh, my mycelium and fungi mm. lately f for my book and I didn't realize that plants uh, are one category of um, beings if you like humans are another category of beings and animals and mycelium and fungi are a third mm. which apparently are actually closer to humans than they are to mm. plants it's a bit weird isn't it <laughs> So what does that say? I, I suppose, you know, the, the, my larger response to your question is that just we have to constantly be aware of that, about the, what connects us in a positive way. Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. To find out more about today's guest and the topics we explored, you can visit the show notes page at natalinahigh.com forward slash the hive podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, please do give it a rating and you can join in the conversation with the hashtag hive podcast. Thanks again for listening and I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.